Hey everybody, welcome to the show. My name is Eric Wright. I will be the host for your Disco Posse podcast today. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by, first of all, a very cool new project that I've got underway, uh, which is called Velocity Closing. One of the most profound things I've been able to do is to be able to get deeply into the technical sales environment and to help a lot of folks, both in product marketing, product management, and understanding how to deliver amazing and extraordinary software demos. So I've created the four-step guide to delivering extraordinary software demos that win deals. If you go to velocityclosing.com, you can actually buy the book today, and you also get access to the audiobook and an upcoming course they're going to have, which is a true interactive uh, webinar where you'll be able to get access to learn about the secrets behind the book. Secondly, we're also sponsored by our good friends at Veeam Software. I'm a huge fan of anything in the world of Veeam because they are the ones to give you your data protection needs, whether it's on the cloud, on-premises, Office 365, everywhere you go. So make sure you back all of that good stuff up for a variety of reasons. But to check it out and find out more, go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. That lets them know that you came from the old Disco Posse podcast. Plus, they're just a fantastic group of people. Make sure you also go back and check out uh, Danny Allen, who's the CTO of Veeam, and we had him on the podcast. This episode features Rachel Haley. Rachel's the CEO and co-founder of Claris Designs. She's such a fantastic person because we had a conversation really about how to do things in a way that you can do more but do less, the challenges of being a founder, the tough part of making it through high growth uh, and being able to keep up with it, there really are just so many great lessons for personal productivity, for startups, for folks that want to be able to get into a position of being a founder. So huge thanks to Rachel for this, and I hope you enjoy the show as much as we did. It was one of those ones where I think we, we recorded before and after even longer than we did for the podcast. It was really just that good. So enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Rachel Haley. I'm a co-founder of Claris Designs, and you're listening to the Disco Posse podcast. You're listening to... I like the on the fly conversation. That's it. That's it. So, uh, Rachel, this is fun because I've, I looked at your history in the industry and you've got some really, really neat things that you're doing, not only in what you've achieved in what you're doing with work with Claris Designs, what you're doing in, in other parts of the field. We'll get into you know, the, the work you're doing with other companies. But more than anything, the mission that you're, whether you realize it or not, you're, you're, you're delivering a really strong mission in kind of a lot of the stuff you're doing. So I want to explore a lot of it. But with that, I think the best we should do is where can people find you online, Rachel, and, and if they wanted to kind of connect or, and learn more about you, and then we'll get into the conversation. Sure. Um, and uh, you can find me online on LinkedIn, primarily just under Rachel Haley. Uh, Claris Designs has a company page there. Um, and then if you visit our, our website, you can find us there at www.clarisdesigns.com. Excellent. So let's start there. I think the best thing we could do is let's kind of describe what, what Claris Designs in, and then we'll, we'll work backwards into, you know, how, what the, what the vision is behind it and, and what some of the really exciting stuff you're doing there is. Sure. So Claris Designs is, um, it started off as a consulting company um, and it's evolved since then. So now we have 
three um, arms of revenue. Uh, one is sales ops and marketing consulting. So a lot of small to mid-sized companies will hire Claris Designs to help them set up their, their processes, the overall organizational structure, as well as their tools. So sort of a three-pronged approach, we call it people, process, and technology. And we're really optimizing their sales and marketing teams for the most efficient um, use to ensure that they're capitalizing on their time efficiently and they can book revenue with the lowest amount of cost. The second part of Claris Designs that I am really passionate about that I love is our outsourcing division. Um, we have a large team of over 100 people in the Philippines that are really offloading a lot of manual top of funnel activities that sales reps come into contact with um, on a day-to-day -day basis that they don't enjoy doing. So a lot of admin type uh, work, data augmentation, et cetera. Um, we've offshored a lot of that into our, to our team, Claris Designs handles that. And we really allow AEs to, to spend more of their time selling and talking to customers versus cleaning the database, finding new people to speak with, figuring out who they're going to speak with and any other type of admin work that goes along with it. And the third piece, which is relatively new and I'm excited about is we're building a product. So in that first revenue stream I described um, in this consult sales ops and marketing consulting, a lot of the times what we are, are do as a company is we go into people's CRM systems or marketing automation tools and we do a high level audit and a check of what's working well and what's not working well. And a lot of that we do manually with our own analyst time and that can actually be automated on an ongoing basis. So we're building a product to basically automate our first revenue stream. Uh, so which is slightly cannibalization, but I think in the long run, it's much more effective and scalable uh, over time. So people can really use a lot of what Claris Designs does at their leisure by, by purchasing our product. Well, the what you bring there is important that the best thing you can do, especially in this kind of a, of a, of a function is to automate yourself out of, out of day-to-day -day tasks, because a lot of the stuff can be systematized. The trick is you can't put things into a system if you don't understand why they need to occur in the way they do. Cause quite often people have a flow. And, and that flow is because they do it a certain way because they've always done it more so than, like you said, the efficiency and understanding like sales processes. Oh, it's, it's, it's a horrifying practice because everybody, you're bringing the, the sales rep. Like, do they, how do they want to work? Then they're coming <laughs> into a team. How does the broader team work? Then you've got defining commercial folks, enterprise folks, you know, people that are doing inside sales, partner, all it's like literally this is a laundry list of different options that you check off and then what you end up with is this big pile of data which is not unlike the the final scene from indiana jones where they move the ark of the covenant into the warehouse and and you'll never find that meaning in the data if you don't like build the flow around it which is which is important. So first of all, congratulations on trying to tackle this problem. Not a, <laughs> un, not a simple thing to take on, but you've done it by, I think, doing the right way. So let's talk about your history and how you got to doing this as, as consultancy, because that's uh, also, I, I wouldn't want to do this. This is a tough job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's an interesting story on how we started Claris Designs and how I even 
ended up in the world of operations, sales operations specifically, I, I tell people I pretty much fell into it. Um, so um, I started my career in finance right out of college. I worked at an asset management firm. It was one of those firms where you work 100-hour work weeks, uh, and you pretty much you are a prisoner for two years. But after those two years, you have uh, tremendous job opportunities. And I realized during my time there that the biggest value that these investors were receiving was from the individual startups that would grow over time and it would become an, um, a public company or be acquired. I think the thing that resonates with me the most is when I saw Instagram's acquisition by Facebook and there was a company that invested five days before that. So the return on that investment was quite significant. And I was thinking, wow, I mean, that investor was at the right place at the right time, but really it was the founders of Instagram who generated all this value and built such a unique platform that's so sticky today. So I figured, okay, this is what I really want to do. I want to start my own company. Um, and after, after uh, my time at this asset management firm, I started interviewing at VC firms. And instead of actually taking the interview, what I did is I would go in as an interview for an associate role. And then midway through, when they asked me what I wanted to do in five years or where I wanted to be, I would pull out a pitch deck for a product that I was thinking of building at the time in a beta version it's like, well, actually, I want to start my own company, and here's the idea, and here's what it looks like, and this is what I'm going to do. And they were a little surprised because it was a bit of a Trojan horse strategy, um, and they would laugh, but then ultimately gave me really good feedback and said, you know, this is a great idea. Uh, your product seems like it could solve a, like a, a need in the marketplace, but really you as a founder, we have some issues with investing in you. You're a single founder, so that's a problem. You have no background in technology. You have no background in operations. So really the chances that we'd give you any money are really low. So why don't you go and get that experience and then we can talk. So that's what I did. I went and I got um, operational experience. I worked at Salesforce for a few years. I taught myself how to program and learned the, the basic like Python, JavaScript and SQL so I could start to build my own applications. Um, and I, then I continued to look for a, a co-founder. So I, um, you know, at Salesforce, I learned how to build custom applications on their force.com platform. Um, and then after a period of time, I had people in my network asking me, you know, how do you do this in the CRM? Or how do you set up this? Or how do you automate this process? And I said, oh, actually, I just learned this last week. Why don't I do it for free for you so I can practice? Um, and at the time, my colleague, uh, his name is Greg Daly, he's an, another co-founder of Claris, was doing something similar for a company called AdRoll. So he was building out their business intelligence team and people would ask him similar questions such as, you know, how should we decide between investing a dollar in marketing versus a dollar in sales? And he would build out a, a funnel for them and multi-attribution tracking. So at some point in 2015, we came together and we said, you know what, we should just start charging for this because yeah. we're a lot of questions. Um, and so we, we, did, we did that part-time while we were still working our full-time jobs and eventually we quit and just built a, uh, a business around these inquiries that we're getting and it, it kind of fell into being consulting. And then, you know, I spent two years doing that went to work for a bigger tech firm called Snowflake, uh, got a lot of really good operational experience there. One experience I don't think I would have learned just continuing to build Claris and then brought that back you know, recently as of this year. And we've been ramping up our product as well as our outsource division and our consulting. So we've seen a lot of growth in the last six months even, um, but that's how Claris kind of 
evolve to where it is today? There's, I could, we could go for seven hours and I would not get tired of unpacking what you just laid down in, in <laughs> but let's talk about a very interesting thing. The working founder, you obviously were purposeful in what you were doing and that you're, you're going into an active role in an organization to build true experience. Like you said, going to get VC money is no different than going to get the first job. They're like, I like your gumption kid. Come back when you got experience. Like, no, sir, that's why I'm here. I, I am exactly. here to get the experience. Yeah. So getting, getting money is you have to have, and it's the sort of stories that they're, you're investing in a team, not in a, you know, it's team, TAM, team technology and TAM, right? It's the three T's that say team, mm -hmm. the people you're investing in, technology, what's the thing they're doing and what's the challenge they're solving and then total addressable market, right? That's the, the sort of the, the triad of, of, of VC investments. But so now you, you take that advice and you become successful, not by accident. I can tell already that mm -hmm. you, anything that you attribute to accident or, or luck has a, a minor portion involved in that. Like everybody does, but mm -hmm. you, you're very purposeful in kind of attacking the problem full force. So you're at Snowflake and through a pretty amazing time in the organization. I've been watching Snowflake since the inception and mm. they went from like, huh, this little company called Snowflake that I think they have a website up to they were beside me at a booth in one of the events and they had the largest booth in the floor. And I was like, I got to get caught up on Snowflake because apparently I've missed some stuff. And, and you're in the team there, of course, at that time and still we're doing some amazing things. So let's talk about that choice to like, okay, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go learn what I, I'm going to build a business around. Sure. So I think, you know, when I was at Claris and we were working with a bunch of small to mid-sized technology companies, the biggest hurdle that I ran, ran into or wall, so to speak, was, you know, I was only as good as my experience. And so when we were working with really small companies such as Series A or Seed, maybe even Series B, and they were more of a um, mid-market or inside sales type of motion or play, it was really easy. It was really easy to express, um, you know, expertise in the functions and the areas that they had questions on. But where I ran into a wall was when you had these big, large enterprise selling motions and a company that was operating at scale well beyond the hundred million in ARR mark. I didn't really know how to answer those questions. Um, and I knew that if I ever wanted to be um, a source of truth or expertise at the table for companies who were going to mirror that type of growth that Snowflake experienced and get to the point where they were this large enterprise selling machine. I needed that experience firsthand at a rapidly growing sales company or as a rapidly growing tech company. Um, and so uh, one of my colleagues in my network that I actually knew through consulting work, he called me up one day and he said, you know, if you really want to get this type of experience, uh, Snowflake is the place to be. The product market fit is fantastic, which it, it still is, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the one thing that we haven't built out yet, and this was back in mid 2017, is operations. You know, no one is thinking about the problems that you think about on a daily basis. So it's really, it's the perfect fit for you because 
You're not an engineer and you're not a product designer, but you do have an operational bone in your body and you're really, that is your strength. So come in and help us really build out this engine as we're looking to, you know, tr triple our revenue and triple our sales for size in just a matter of, you know, 12 months. Uh, so I knew, I knew that it was a great opportunity and I could see what it really meant to run an organization like that at scale, but also build it from zero to a specific revenue amount, right? Because I had seen companies go from zero to 10. I'd helped companies go from, you know, 10 to 20 to 50 and 50 to 100. But then it was always sort of like a capped out at 100. Snowflake, it was, you know, from 30 million and well beyond the, the 300 million mark. So it's great. But, and the interesting thing too is that the percentage of companies that make it to the 100 is, is fractional, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's actually yeah. disturbing. Anybody that thinks like, yeah, I should start a company. That's probably a bad idea. <laughs> statistics, <laughs> are not, statistics are not on your side. But so it was very interesting. So this is the other thing too. And, and you brought it up. That's important. There is, I've never seen a company that's built the machine and grown into it. It is <laughs> almost always retroactively applied because you you have to figure it out. Like you have to figure out the people flow first and then like sales process, like they've obviously got some background. Generally, if you hire an enterprise salesperson, they've, they know, you know, they, they know how to move stuff from, I, you know, from prospect to ID, ID to offer. Like we, we know this kind of like this, this flow chart of stuff and they have nuances to how they describe it. But inevitably they're just like, Hey, look, I'm out here building relationships. You, you, you folks build a system around me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's normal, like, and you kind of have to give them that freedom because that salesperson, a great salesperson, especially in an enterprise does not come in and said, okay, <clears throat> let's take a look at your sales ops process. They're like, all right, where's, where's your CRM so I can get in and find who I already know. And mm -hmm. that's their <laughs> focus, right? It's, it's gotta be. So, <clears throat> excuse me, how, Am I, am I alone in, in my discovery of like, as I go through more companies and I've done startup advisory and it's the same thing. I'm like, okay, let's just figure it out first. And then we'll back some process into it because if it doesn't work, having a perfect process is not going to do you any good. <laughs> that's right. I would agree with that. You know, I think that's, that's something I actually learned at Snowflake before I had more of a myopic viewpoint where I was like all operations, all process and almost a little bit too robotic which was great because um, coming to Snowflake, I was like, oh, wow, interesting. This is a completely different way to operate a company and how to think about it. And it worked and it worked so well. And so it was a good humbling experience for me to say, why don't I take some time to really learn exactly what's happening day by day, interview the reps, see what they do, and then operationalize it and build a process around that, just like you mentioned, where I had made that mistake previously before with companies. So I absolutely agree with you. And the interesting thing is, is your choice to be active in the people is mm -hmm. the first thing you need to do. Because if you don't interview reps, if you don't live their life with them, then they effectively are, it's them against the world. And you're part of the world if you're <laughs> not like listening to them. And so they, I quite often bump into this too, is like reps feel like they're fighting their own internal systems. They're like, look, just let me, I'm just trying to sell. Like, I'm just trying to do, 
like, don't make me slow down to write notes, to do whatever, to, you know, go in. Like, that's why cleanliness of the database, cleanliness of the stuff. That's why we need help. That's why we need better ways to, to handle that stuff because it won't happen. It's, it's very unfortunate tedium that, that has to occur, but it's, it's at the bottom of the to-do list. And if the top of the to-do list is make relationships, guess what? <laughs> Data cleanliness is not going to be a, a priority for them. And, and I don't know that it should. That's just why, like, it's such a, it's an interesting thing. Like how, so what's the balance that you find in, like, presenting it purely as a system versus getting them to tell you what the system that they will work within looks like? Yeah, it's um, it's sort of like the book, The Art of, or Never Split the Difference. It's a negotiation art. So you kind of want to make it their idea that they pitch back to you. Um, but I will say to your point, you know, AEs are a sales ops team's customer, right? You, they come first. If they don't do their job well, then the company doesn't do well, right? Rev money, money talks, they need to make their quota. The company needs to book new deals. They are important. Um, and Although it can be a bit of a challenge trying to merge those two worlds of, hey, this is what works the best from a data perspective or operationally, and this is the process that I would put in place versus what actually is feasible from the number of clicks or a functionality perspective, um, I would say I skew more now in my experience uh, towards understanding what will work well within the reps world and realm of possibilities and then really try to build a process around that and optimize everything else because if they don't engage in the system and feel that it's working for them and that it's easy it's just not going to work it's going to fall apart that adoption isn't going to happen you're not going to be able to get the the data that you need you're not going to be able to pr provide the insights that you would want to provide to not only help the business but to help them meet their quotas faster so really, I think that discovery and building that business partnership with them early on from a sales ops perspective is the number one thing you can do. Um, sit down, understand their pain points, and just like you would with any other customer when you're selling a product, figure out what is the value that you can provide and what they struggle with and build something that optimizes, optimizes that. I'll have to remember now in future, any of the work I do with the sales teams, I'll have to get my best late night FM DJ voice like Chris Voss. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Use all uh, the tricks from Chris Voss. Yeah. It's, it's one of the most fantastic books. And actually, if you're a masterclass user, so the, yeah. the masterclass platform, Chris Voss does a masterclass uh, in there. And it talks about the whole thing of mirroring living. So that's, that's a sidebar, but uh, it's an amazing book. And I recommend it to, to everybody for just day-to-day -day stuff. Like yeah, you said, it's, it's part of, of every day, just understanding and everyone as unique as it is, it's not. And as ununique as it should be, it isn't right. So everything that I'll say, pardon the use, everything's a snowflake, but <laughs> snowflakes are actually pretty close to each other. They're just mm -hmm. minorly different. So the trick is when you're systemizing those things, it's just finding the what's core and then what's nuance. And then from there, it's a little easier. And it's, it's time, you know, you, and it's a tough job. You know, how, how do you find that working with the sales teams, like how receptive are they when you're going through that with them? 
Yeah, that's a good question. It depends on how you approach the topic. So if you approach the topic as I, you are my customer, I'm here to help you tell me what you need and let's figure it out together. Very receptive. They'll talk forever. Uh, they have lots of ideas actually. And they're, and you know, their sales reps sort of get this, uh, reputation unnecessarily. So as someone who's not the sharpest with numbers and they're just there to close deals, but they're really smart, especially when it comes to their commission checks. They, they can do Einstein. Now. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, they, they have really good ideas and they have really great hands-on experience. So I don't actually know what it's like to be out there with an enterprise customer such as United Airlines and having to speak with 16 different C-level executives or whomever and navigate the relationships and that political hierarchy. I, you know, I don't know what that's like. They do, and they can give me that information. So when I work with them, I really try to approach it from that perspective. I'm here to help you. What are the biggest pain points? How can I make those better for you? And then they become really receptive. If you take it the other way and you say, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Sales Rep, here's a process I think that you could really benefit from. Can you try it out and let me know your feedback? It's sort of like, Ugh, this is another thing I have to do. I don't really want to do this. I don't really want to give you feedback. Like they will to entertain you and be nice and cordial, but it, they're not, it's a counterfeit yes, if we're going to go back to the never split the difference um, examples. And so you really, you know, I really approach it as, I'm selling to them my services, but they're the customer. So they come first and they have to tell me what they need so I can really understand it and make it reality. It sounds like listening is one of the more important things that you do and have done for more than just Snowflake, right? How did that, when did it strike you that, you know, as they say, I've got two ears, two eyes, one mouth. They use them proportionately, right? Mm-hmm. How did it, like, did you, before your career, you know, understand, and it, it definitely is an, it's a personality trait that people maintain, and it's tough. You, it's very tough late in life to be like, you're going to be a good, you have to be a good listener. If they <laughs> haven't already been born into that and understood the value of it, it's tough to introduce that in the working world. So what was it that brought that importance to you in the value of listening? Yeah, actually, that was my first three weeks at Snowflake. Um, what happened was I was used to a world where I was hired in as a consultant after the company had already come to the conclusion that they needed help and couldn't solve it on their own, right? Because I don't think the initial go-to for internal operations team is, let's hire someone else. We can't figure this out. I think it's more like, we don't have the bandwidth, we don't have the expertise, et cetera, let's look externally. And I had just, that was my world and that was my experience. So the first day when I get to Snowflake, my thought process was, oh, I'll just do an audit. I'll do what I normally do. I'll look through the system and write up a long summary and prepare a pitch deck on what I think's working well and what I don't think is working well. And I spent zero time interviewing people, huge mistake. Because then I went to my leadership team and I said, hey, these are the things I think we need to fix. And they're, they're sort of like, interesting. And they weren't really bought on to the fact that they were problems or agreed that they were problems. And I remember speaking to one of my mentors at the time, who's still a, a sales executive there at Snowflake and he, he's fantastic. And his name is Rick. And he came up to me, he's like, Rachel, you have never sold before. Have you? And I said, I guess not. I've never had to sell. It was always an inbound inquiry. And I was hired. He's like, yeah, that's not how selling works. You're bad at selling, but that's okay. You can figure <laughs> it out. 
you have to listen. You have to listen and you have to get people bought in that there's a problem. And so you can't do that unless you hear what they're saying. So then I was like, all right, let me try a new approach. And then from then on, I would just listen in meetings and take lots of notes and then make sure that I understood the problem. And it wasn't until three months later that I said, okay, I think this is what we struggle with. Do you agree? And then when people said no, I would say, okay, well, can you easily tell me the answer to this problem? Do you know our conversion rate from, you know, on, on demand to self-service or self-service to capacity customers, things like that. And they're like, oh, I guess, I guess we don't know. So I was like, okay, well, let's build a process around getting answers to those questions. Um, but yeah, I, I learned a lot. It's like mainly because I failed a lot uh, and then had to pick myself. It was, it was that experience in the beginning where I realized you have to really listen if you're going to be an effective salesperson or in, effective in any job, really. It, it, it highlights an important thing. And I say this to people, and even as a technologist, we're all in sales, right? To some degree, we even use the phrase selling yourself, right? When you're <laughs> like pitching for a job or whatever, there's always an element of sales and negotiation in, in so much of what we do. It's just a matter of whether you realize it or not. And then when you do realize it, and then you can learn how to enhance that capability. You had it, right? I think you, you, it was in you. It's just that somebody had to say, Hey, Rachel. So I, you're, you're already, it's like, it's like you've missed one piece, but you, it's already there. I know it's there. And you were able to turn it and, and open that up, which is good. So, uh, but it's, it's tough, you know, to go through that. And again, like you said, when you're brought in as a consultant, you have, two interesting things. One, they're ready for you. For the most part, they're like, all right, we've got a problem. But worse than that, they have an emergent need for the most part, because they're usually, you, they don't say, I think we should build a better process. I think we're doing okay, but let's get a little bit of help. It's like, We've been trying for nine months. The conversion's not going. We've got until November to get this done or our licensing's gonna get paid for another 12 months. How the hell are we gonna, and like, that's the urgency with which you're brought in. So how do you deal with, one, they need you, which is good, but you are walking into a firestorm effectively of like, they've really tried a lot of things. And how do you, how do you approach that situation now as you walk into that environment? Right, because the problem is it needed to have been done yesterday. That's right. And then like, well, when can you finish it? Um, the, re the, the biggest problem I see when companies are in that situation is a lack of ability to prioritize effectively. So it's normally that they're trying to accomplish several different tasks all at once and they are competing with one another. And so nothing is really getting done through to completion. That I feel is what I see most often. So then the goal is really effective understanding and listening. I'm like, okay, executive leadership team, if you had to pick just one thing to do, what is that one thing? And then they'll say the thing that they thought it was important, like conversion rates. Like, okay, well, let's pack, unpack that process. How are SDRs getting their leads? How are they following up on prospects? How are they passing that 
two AEs. And then you sort of map out every bit of that process and you find the one big break in that and you say, okay, that's the biggest problem. You can't fix conversion if you first don't have a good lead inquiry process where someone can come to your website, fill out information, and then they are followed up with within a matter of minutes. That's our problem. That's where things are breaking. Let's solve that first. And we're not going to talk about anything else until that's done. And let's isolate and execute on just this. And then when that is done and working, we'll move to the next one. And even though it's still a priority and it's urgent and it should have been done already, it's a lot easier to digest and get done quickly because you're really only focusing on one problem. And you have to stay really calm because it does seem like the end of the world, but you won't be able to think clearly if you're in a panic mode. So you have to just take a deep breath, understand you're just trying to sell software and solve it one piece at a time. You bring up points that are, anybody that's read uh, Eli Goldratt will, will know them. It's ultimately, it's the theory of constraints, right? Is that mm-hmm. you have to look for the most significant constraint and in that you find the goal. You know, so the goal may be a higher conversion rate, but if you're attacking the wrong constraints, that's, that's the problem, right? Is that they're gonna find 20 things that they wanna fix, they're gonna try and solve all of them at once, and they're not gonna do that. So did, did sort of gold rat-isms enter into your life at some point? Was that part of your study at all? Or like, have you ever looked at like lean flow and, and lean manufacturing as part of, because it's, it's in what you're talking about. I'm curious whether that's part of your portfolio of, of stuff you bring to it. Yeah, in a sense, I think that that's true. I've never studied it in a professional manner or really taken notes to incorporate that, but indirectly, that's what we end up doing. I think if I were to pull on any work, it would be Jocko Willink's Extreme Ownership. He goes into that on the specific prioritization really thoroughly that we've definitely incorporated into our business model as best we can. I think the way that he describes how you have to simplify tasks at the highest level so they're easily translated down to the the lowest level is something that has really helped me because whether you're working for a company as a full-time operations employee or you're consulting, that message and strategy is the same. You have to be able to trans, like the CEO has to know what we're working on and then all of his subordinates or his or her subordinates all the way down so it can be effectively executed. Um, and then, you know, throughout doing that, you ultimately have this lean operation type of flow because it has to be so simple and easy to execute. So it can't be complex. Yeah, it's, I'm always interested when you, like I said, it's, when you hear people describe the way they approach things, there are sort of Toyota-isms, you know, in kind of what you described. And it's, it's interesting because some people come from to, into technology companies and maybe they had a background sometimes in like manufacturing or in logistics. And ultimately you take those capabilities, the idea of like Kaizen and those, like I said, the Kata and the Toyota way. And then you look, when you then study it and like, oh, where did it come from? Oh, okay, this is, it was ultimately all based in Jocko Willink is a, first of all, it's, it's a fantastic book. One of my favorite ones, he's like, we're not gonna go do a lot of references to the military, followed by a lot of references to the military. <laughs> However, <laughs> but they're meaningful, right? It's, it is, you know, stories that you know, 
when literal lives are on the line, this is how you have to think. So when you relax the fact that no one's going to get shot doing what you're doing, it's fairly easy to be able to slow down and say, okay, let's, let's think about the real core problem that we're trying to solve and where's the biggest you know, area of focus that we need to apply to first. Exactly. And a little thing that you said, and I thank you for that, you said from the CEO down to his or her, and it's funny that we, we sort of struggle this. And then I looked in looking at your history, being a, a female founder, and mm-hmm. you, I know you do a lot to kind of help. And we have this sort of unfortunate thing that, you know, I say folks, but a lot of times people say guys. Mm-hmm. And you are walking into a technology company, which has a fairly a, a dominant percentage of, you know, male, you know, as like, as far as developers uh, in and leadership team quite often on the sales teams, you find quite often AEs versus SDRs, like there'll be different sort of percentages of representation, both, you know, in gender and, 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 and background and such. I, I'm just curious, Rich, you know, like how, how does it, how has that affected, you know, what you're doing to, like help people to get some past some of those barriers. Right. Um, so and I say barrier, I, I, I shouldn't even, it's, I mean, terrible that I say that. I, I feel even bad to say it shouldn't be a barrier, but it is like, it's, these are things that people are, they feel are stuck behind and they genuinely are in many cases. Right. So for Clara specifically, um, one of the things that are, we have a mission behind is empowering women, especially those who have a constrained schedule due to raising children or anything else in their lives. Uh, so we specifically look to hire uh, women who, who need more flexible working hours as well as working locations. So Claris is a fully remote company, which is fantastic, even prior to COVID. So we were able to adapt rather rather quickly. With our employees that we have in the United States, several of them are working mothers, and they appreciate the balance that Claris offers in terms of when they can actually do their work, take meetings, et cetera, and follow up. It gives them the ability to have that type of working dynamic. And then within the Philippines, as well. A lot of women there weren't able to find jobs because they had to stay at home and raise children or the traffic in the Philippines is so bad. So commuting anywhere was rather difficult. So we have a women first mission statement, which I think is really fantastic. We've hired several women onto our team and have a culture that really supports them, which I'm really um, proud of the fact that we continue to to build that and have that first. Um, We follow Companies such as Spanx with Sarah Blakely, she also is women-powered company and things of that nature. So it's really great to have other people like that you can work alongside with um, or just see in the field and get information from. In terms of my personal experience, I would say that I do see somewhat of gender imbalance in in tech companies that I've worked with or worked for. I know that there's more of a heightened sensitivity around it to empower women or minority groups within technology. It is something that I think will be a work in progress for a very long time, unfortunately. Uh, so that, that is something that I'm very mindful of in, in terms of my own, my own experience. But uh, in terms of working, it is a little bit strange sometimes to be the youngest person in the room and then the only female in the room. But 
you know, you have to kind of position yourself to just be on par with everyone else, uh, which is great. So I see it as a fantastic opportunity to really continue to push myself. And I haven't necessarily felt any discrimination in my own world. I just am more aware of it and I see the imbalance and then try to empower women with, and that mission through my own, my own company and work. Well, it's, it's good. And, and, and you can, like I said, it's, it's in, in the way you describe things, in the way that you talk about the mission, it's, it's very present and, and it's, it, it, which is good because I think just the fact that it's, it's there, you know, it helps to, to bring people closer to an understanding that there's a challenge. And like you said, they're effectively generational challenges. We are, these things will take a generation or more to begin to really profoundly affect. It's, it's a, but the recognition of the challenge right now, I think is good, you know, that it's a, it's a tough conversation. And, you know, for a lot of organizations to figure out, you know, how do you find the right balance and, and, and make sure, you know, it's a, it's a weird challenge to, for people to have to face. And the good thing is that being suddenly remote, I think a lot of companies have suddenly realized the, the format and function of their day-to-day didn't need to be what we've been doing for a long time. <laughs> and <laughs> so being suddenly remote, all of a sudden they're reevaluating, like, well, look, the company didn't burn down, even though we've all been working from home for a while. Look, it's not easy. It certainly changes the dynamic, but also in a very positive way, I believe, in that companies have figured out, hey, uh, us all staring over cubicle walls at each other in an open office space may not actually be the ideal work environment, especially because, like you said, we can empower more people to have more time with their kids or mm-hmm. their partners or just with their own hobbies. There's an idea, right? It doesn't even need to be that, you know, you have to have a reason, a special reason why you need time uh, just for yourself. It's actually a pretty darn good reason. To <laughs> and actually, I guess that's a question I wanted to bring. Do you have any time for yourself? You are, you are a busy, busy person, Rachel. You've got a lot going on. Uh, how do you manage all of it? Great question. I try to eat my own dog food and really prioritize what is necessary and absolutely critical for the business. I take time every week on Sunday to think through what I want to get done that week and I don't do anything else. It's sort of a Warren Buffett do not do list, right? You create a list of 20 things, cross off the last 15. So I think about you know what is really going to move the needle for Claris? Is it going to be responding to this contract negotiation and figuring out the actual jargon that we need to use? Or is it going to be thinking through what functionality we need in our next product release so we can actually get people to buy it for an annual contract versus month to month? Probably the latter versus yeah. the And so prioritizing and really making sure that my brain power is going towards long-term strategic decisions is helpful, not micromanaging. That was another mistake that I've learned in my past life is to really empower your team, hire great people and empower them. And I do not get into the weeds on a lot of back office type work. I, 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 I enforce that and empower my team to do that. So it really allows me the time to think through these problems. And actually what I've found is if you don't take time for yourself, right? Whether it's 
meditation, or for me, I really like to run or do yoga or do something active, your brain in the background is, is thinking about these these ideas. And so you won't be able to the table refreshed with that energy if you don't do it. So you definitely reach diminishing marginal returns early on. And so it's critical that you prioritize only the things that you want to do and get done that week that are the most meaningful, execute on them without any distractions and take that time, not only for your mental and physical health, but that actually recharges your ability to add more into the business. So to summarize your question, I tried to prioritize as best I can and really give myself two full days where I'm not doing any work and one or two days with no meetings at all. Just thinking. That's uh, people always ask me like, you like, you know, working with people. So you must like meetings. I said, no, I like collaboration, which means I don't like meetings because <laughs> usually meetings are not collaborative. They're administrative and unnecessarily long. Uh, so it's a, an unfortunate thing from the business world that also I found is getting questioned in the, all the right ways because of being suddenly remote. People are saying like, look, day one, the moment that we sent everybody from my company home saying, that's it, do not come to the office tomorrow. We are all working from home and potentially we're evaluating what we can do for, for the foreseeable future. This was, you know, a few months back now. And day one, day two, literally you didn't hear a word from anybody. It was as if the company had gone on holiday because people mm -hmm. were just trying to figure it out. And then what the reaction was like, it was like an elastic being stretched too far. Suddenly, everybody started scheduling wall-to-wall -wall meetings because we need to maintain connectivity and connection. And I was like, no, 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 no. I've been a remote worker for a long time. This is not how you work remotely. <laughs> and then I found that we've kind of adapted to it, which is good. Um, but so to talk about productivity, if you don't mind, I want to sort of dig a bit further into your methods. Uh, now, there's kind of the James Clear you know, rule of three, uh, you know, three items a day, uh, three items a week, you know, major big ticket items. Uh, there's one that I've done some more study on recently called the Ivy Lee method, which is six items. I call that the deep end of the pool. You got to be really good at prioritization to have six items on a day. Um, but I would call it three major, three minor. Do you have a kind of a, a process or, or sort of like a, a system that you've, you've used, Rachel? Great question. I sort of built my own. I would say, have you read the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey? Yes. Yeah. No yeah. Uh, I've read, I've read too much more, more Covey in my life than I wish I could, but. <laughs> yeah, he, he's great. I loved that book. Um, and in the book, they have that Punnett square of urgent, not important, important and urgent, not important, but or not urgent, but important, etc. So in the top upper right quadrant is the not urgent and important. So I put everything in that box and really just try to spend most of my time there. I think that as, a, as an executive, you, as much as you can, should not be pulled into the urgent and important items. Those are more reactive. And the reason that they're there is because you didn't spend enough time in the non-urgent and important box to prevent it. So I would say that's really the method that I, that I you know, overall, holistically subscribe to in terms of how I put different tasks in each of those quadrants. I have a series of questions that I ask, such as, do, if I solve this today, will this prevent future problems 
right? So it's like, does solving this actually solve several other problems? If so, okay, that's probably important. If I solve this, will this allow Claris to generate more revenue in the future? Yes or no. If I do this, will this help us expand our footprint or scale the business from an employee growth perspective? Yes or no. Things, things of that nature. So I have a list of questions to help me categorize, is this urgent and important? Important, but not urgent. <laughs> right? It's that, like yeah. urgent, not important. And then I, I go from there. But trying to spend my time as much as I can in just the not urgent, but important quadrant of, of things really helps me categorize my work and be more efficient. Yeah, it's a, it's a spectacular system because in doing that, it's, it's, you really have to question yourself continuously. Everybody sort of thinks that like people just figure this out or they're good at it by nature. It's like saying like, it's like, I even from a fitness perspective, I used to, I get frustrated all the time. Someone like, well, I look at you. It's obviously easy for you. Like <laughs> you understand I was 50 pounds overweight. I made a very clear choice to do things that did not feel good. Like I didn't want to do them, but I knew I had to, right? It's, there are certain things that you have to, to take personal sacrifice and question, and then you ultimately build systems around it and, and, you know, can leverage it. So as much as anything ever looks easy or sounds easy or sounds like you were born with it, there's a, a, there's a little bit of DNA and a whole lot of lived experience that tends to drive where people are successful with things. The, the one thing that I'm going to call out too, when you described micromanaging as a, a thing, I could, I could even see people, they don't see this. I'm a, we're on video. I could see you, you even wince a little when you described it. It, it sounds like that was something you really did struggle with and maybe even still struggle with. Yes. In full transparency, I absolutely struggled with that. And absolutely failed and had to pick myself back up and work towards succeeding again. I wasn't able to offload enough in my time at Snowflake and really just kind of got crushed. And then now what I've learned from that and implementing that into my time at Claris is to ensure that you spend a lot of time building out a team and hiring is everything. Your employees are your most critical asset at a company. I truly believe that. I didn't always understand how much that meant until recently. So it all starts at top of the funnel, right? Find a good candidate that you can really have as part of your team, someone who's trustworthy and reliable, and you can empower him or her to do the job that you've hired and then hire smart people and let them do their job. I do struggle every now and again with trying to get too much in the weeds. And then when I catch myself doing that, I will just purposefully step back and say, I don't know, you tell me, come to me with a plan, but this is, this is not something that I'm going to dig into the details on. I want you to, to learn it and then tell me what, what you think we should do. But uh, it was only from failing miserably, which I want to emphasize, failing is not bad. It's great. It's a good way for you to learn quickly and implement a new strategy. But after my failure, I think, you know, I've learned a lot more on how to coach, mentor, develop, and lead people, especially at Clara. So I don't have to spend my time micromanaging in the weeds. It's not fun for anyone, right? It's not fun as the leader to feel that you have to be in Involved in that level of detail. And it's not fun for the employee or the subordinate because or he thinks that you don't trust them enough. And so you have to highly beneficial and mutually beneficial relationship if you can empower your team and say, you know what, you come to me if you 
feel you have a block until till further notice you're running with this. And it's been great. <laughs> a lot more time for me. It's uh, it definitely sounds like trust is pervasive in the way that you approach a lot of things because you, you, you think about it in the sense of how do I trust somebody else, even myself with what I'm about to do? Mm -hmm. How did that become a part of your thought process or how did you become aware of it? I'll say, I would, I would bank that it's been there. When did you kind of uncover that that was part of that journey to getting out of the micromanagement game? Right. I think that was failing again at Snowflake. It was more along the lines that I would give people things to do. And then I was spending more of my time making sure they were doing all of those as opposed to just letting the chips fall where maybe they would have fallen. So if the person succeeds at the task, well then great, everyone wins. If he or she doesn't, and then that's a great learning experience for that person, right? And so you just have to empower and let things fall. And the job as a leader or a manager is to make sure that you orchestrate and navigate the team so that you allow your team to make these micro errors and mistakes so they can learn as well, right? So management is a lot more behind the scenes strategic understanding of the whole picture and how it operates together, kind of like a symphony or an orchestra versus tactically making sure things are getting done. And once I realized that that tactical follow-up was not working and things weren't getting done on time, and then we were being crushed by the amount of work and I wasn't able to take on more and my work-life balance was absolutely out of whack, I had to really take a step back and say, okay, this is not an effective strategy. I have clearly thrown up the white flag. I have lost this battle. I really need to rethink what I'm doing. It's not going to scale. When did, when did it hit? And when did you, it's, was it, I forget who, I apologize, I should know the, the name. She did an amazing TED talk. It's called the, the, the Art of, or whatever, like On Being Wrong. And it's actually, the, I think the book is called On Being Wrong, which is a fan. <laughs> but we, the illustration that she used to describe it is the wily e. Coyote running off the cliff chasing the roadrunner. And then the roadrunner made it all the way across. And Wiley e. Coyote makes it halfway and then stops and looks down. We, we generally are way too far by the time we realize something's gone wrong. When, what did that feel like when you realized you were underwater? I became very ill. I had stress-induced vertigo and I could not uh, drive my car anymore. And I could not function. I couldn't see things straight. And it was to the point where I was so physically exhausted, I couldn't work anymore. And so it was a sign that my body was saying, you should probably rethink your strategy here because you're not the only person to lead a team in technology. You're not the only person to work really hard and have big lofty goals. Several other thousands of people do it every day. You must be wrong. Your body is telling you to stop and rethink. Even if you just quit, it, your body is telling you that like, I cannot continue this way anymore. And it was really scary. I thought that it could have been something very uh, serious and more terminal. And I was fortunate that it was just stress and vertigo that I needed to take a step back and recover from. But when you, when your health becomes compromised, that's sort of like a very large red light flashing warning of you need to stop and really rethink what you're doing because you cannot continue this way. 
And that's, it's amazing. It actually does manifest itself physically, mm -hmm. but only once it's reached uh, an extreme point. Like, so you're, you're at 90%, you know, it's like the thermometer, you know, it can go up to a certain point, then eventually it pops. And, right. But it, it, it's not good that it was all the way near the top for a long time. And, and we tend not to be, this is the interesting thing. I think the challenge and the dichotomy of self starters like yourself and a lot of folks in the industry and the world, right. Is that you're built to not detect that stuff. You have to not, you have to do stuff, which is not normal. Like you kind of have to go beyond. That's what makes you, this sort of, 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 I would call it 1%, whatever it is, like you are different in a way that you are choosing a path where you are 100% in charge of the outcome and you have to have faith that you're going to do way more than normal to get it started. Once it does, then you build a team, you do other thing. But so it's a real, like I said, this dichotomy that it's in our personality to do too much really hard to stop and reflect and i think that's uh so now you know when how do you spot that because it doesn't go away uh when when do you know now that it's beginning to get too far for you right good question um i spend a lot more time meditating doing yoga and going on long runs so normally for me, my, I have to spend at least a few hours with no technology whatsoever. So I will put my phone away, turn it off and I'll go for a run. I'll log off, turn off my computer. So nothing can make any noise and think just for three hours straight and just lie there and don't read a book. Don't listen to music. Don't do anything. Just see where your thoughts go. And then I'll naturally be able to figure out, am, did I... Did I do what I wanted this week? Did I feel underwater? Do I feel like I was just, you know, Wiley Coyote running on a treadmill and never being able to get off? Or how do I feel I was doing in terms of allocating my time? Do I feel exhausted? Do I feel overly exhausted? When you feel overly exhausted, for me specifically, I feel like I didn't get enough important work done. I was just responding to that urgent and unimportant or an urgent and important type of task that really drained me. And so I have to really, when I just let my brain kind of collect itself after some extended period of time with no technology, I can really get in touch with how I feel from my exhaustion level and really catch it. So I do that at least three times a week um, and I have to. And if I go a week without doing it, it's really horrible. So I have to really carve that time out to think and kind of organize my thoughts. Well, and it's an interesting thing. It's a, it, I call it slowing down to speed up. And I, I do it myself. Like I could, I could fail 24 straight hours with work. Like I could definitely, there's never a lack of things to do, but the best thing I do sometimes is I'll suddenly be like, okay, that's it. I'm just in the middle of the day, I'm going for a run. And the moment that you can't access technology, your, your email, your whatever, I become very, quickly introspective which is a beautiful feeling and it's my i mean so meditation is funny i i'm very frustrated by meditation because i'm trying to do it in a spot and i'm i'm not smart i will see that i'm like well since i'm meditating maybe I could cut this down and i could go over <laughs> grab the laptop and do some coding but when i'm on my bike or i'm out for a run you immediately just 
you know you're inaccessible and you're mentally prepared to be inaccessible. And it's a beautiful freeing feeling because of the moment that I do that, I unlock this incredible creativity. And the fun thing about, you know, I'm an endurance cyclist. So you know, three hours in, there's no, there's nothing left from the week. Like it's, even if I was thinking hard about my week, it's gone. And now I'm really thinking, what would I do better? Like what's a bigger goal? And you can really get into that sort of deep work, you know, Cal Newport type of, of thinking because you are forcibly out of distraction, which is mm -hmm. kind of an interesting thing. How do you, how does your day look? If you don't mind me asking Rachel, like, because being a founder and being a builder, it's not a nine to five gig, especially because you're supporting people in remote parts of the world who are in different time zones than you. Mm -hmm. How does that, how do you lay your, your 24 hours out? <laughs> yeah, I um, try to be really diligent about how I schedule time. So I will schedule the time to do my reflection and I'll put it on my calendar. So people know that I'm out of office, out of office, not available or accessible. I will schedule in workout times. I'll schedule in the thinking times and I'll make sure I have at least two days a week with no meetings at all. And the first part of those days I do actual work um, in terms of giving feedback on our product, following up with customers, trying to figure out if we need to change any of our positioning with our selling cycle, et cetera, things that I want to be spending my time on. And the last part of the day, thinking more strategically and long-term about the company and the vision and where I see us in the next six months. So I make sure that I carve out that time every week and have it so the team knows this is when I'm unavailable. And I, I'm very diligent with not moving things. In the beginning of this year, I would constantly take meetings I'm like, oh, that's just my reflection time. That's just my meditation time. You can schedule over that. That's fine. And I became really exhausted really quickly. And I thought, okay, now I'm not repeating this mistake. So I would say, no, you can wait a day. You can wait two days. And actually, you could probably wait a week. I did this experience where I went two weeks without engaging at all and just took two weeks off, which feels like an eternity as a co-founder. And then it <laughs> no fell joke. apart. They did it for, they were fine. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I wanted to get done obviously didn't get done, but it was, it, nothing exploded. And at that point I realized, ah, okay, this is, I, this is okay. This is good to schedule this time in here because if you don't, you're just going to get wrapped up, you meaning Rachel, in the day-to-day -day tactical and you're not going to be scoring any points. You'll be gaining lots of yards and not scoring any points and that's not where you want to be. So making sure that I schedule that in every day uh, in times to think is, is really effective for me. So it's, I don't actually, I'm always thinking about the business, but I have dedicated times where it's specifically, I'm not going to be distracted. Let me think long-term about the business and how that works. And then here's a time where I'm going to just let my brain do whatever it needs to do. I'm going to go on an exercise and make sure that I'm taking care of myself as well. And that naturally works out a lot better. And I think it's, it's funny. I actually had a conversation uh, recently with somebody and he's a CTO of a software firm. And, and we talked about the managing your life as 168, not 40. Cause that's really, especially as a founder, you're, you're, there is no 40 hours of your week. And it may be 40 hours of actual work or 50 or whatever, like forget the number. It's just that it isn't the same block of time every day. Like you said, in the evening, you thinking about strategic things, it's not actually bad. And in fact, you need to do it because as a, as a builder, as a founder, 
you have a different responsibility to what you're trying to achieve. And, you know, it's as much as I, I adore sort of like uh, uh, the folks at Basecamp. Uh, so uh, David Hennemar Hansen and Jason mm -hmm. Freed, they do, they write great books as well. And they're very strict on the like, that's it, 5 p.m., the email's off, the phone's off. And I'm like, that's fantastic. I could never work like that. <laughs> but, but I respect that that's their choice of boundary. Uh, and, you know, I'm not a... What's the other one is Alibaba, uh, Jack Ma, they call it 999. It's like nine hours. Of, it's disturbing amounts of work that, that they expect people to do. And, and, and you can tell, I know that I wouldn't make it. So, and one last thing in closing, Rachel, you're, you lead by example, even in the way you describe what you do. How, how much do you sort of have to push amongst your founding team and, and your staff and your customers, like making sure that they understand that they also don't need to be go, go, go. Like you, you need to get it done, but you also, you don't, there's better ways to get it done. I try to write embody that as much as I can. When I tell people to take time off, I ask that they do not respond to emails and I can handle it if, if I need to be the backup. And also I ask people to give me an idea of what their day-to-day -day looks like. And if I see people spending a lot of time on meetings or late night emails, I'll stop and ask and say, what are you spending your time on? Because I don't think all of this you actually need to be doing. And let's really reorganize your schedule because coming from the banking finance world where you work a hundred plus hours a week, I can absolutely do that. And for the longest time, I just figured, oh, you just work harder. And that'll, and just work until 2 a.m. every single night and never sleep and work on the weekends and get it done. And that just, you burn out so quickly. It's not effective. So my mantra is let's work smarter, not harder what are we really trying to solve and do you really need to go to that meeting what are you solving here why are you doing this and i think you mentioned this when you were talking about the transition from in-person work to remote work where people were confused because you know this is just sort of how it had been for the longest time and adjusting sometimes people do things every day just because that's how it was done and that's what they're used to when really if you stopped and thought about it critically you would realize i don't actually need to have this meeting for 30 minutes, I can solve it with an email or I can just give them a call quickly or something very different, but people tend to get into these ruts. So I, that was, that's what I do as a, as a leader is try to understand people's day and figure out how to make it more efficient and, and almost reinforce the fact that working these crazy hours is not the strategy. I failed from that. Let's not do that. Let's, let's work effectively and smarter and be really efficient with the time that we do have. And when you take time off, let's make sure that you can completely unplug. So you come back refreshed. It's uh, these are life lessons that in a, in a sense, I think a lot of people need to experience the edge. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm also the, like, I'm the worst for my own advice on this one. Cause I'm my, my belief is always like the only way, you know, the edge is when you go past it and then realize like, unfortunately, that's kind of my own style. And, and so every once in a while, I, I test the edges a little too hard. And, and, but it's, I've learned now to understand and, and be able to then reflect, pause, rethink, and, and yeah, and then slow down to speed up. So these are good things. So Rachel, 
this has been incredible. And I, uh, I didn't give enough attention to the sort of the deeper bits that you're doing with Claris, but living this life myself, I know this is a not easy task and you're doing fantastic work. So congratulations on the successes you've already experienced. I wish you many more. I hope to catch up again in future as, as more stuff is going on because you're both personally and professionally really doing great things. And I think people can, can learn from how you're modeling yourself and your team and your customer experience. Uh, it, these are really, really great lessons. And thank you very much for sharing them with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Great and again, so for folks that want to find out, of course, you can go to the Claris Designs website. We'll have all the links down below. Uh, and uh, and if, you know, if you want to connect, I'll include your, your LinkedIn on there. I'm a weird one. So I, I'm like the super open LinkedIn guy. And I know some people aren't. Uh, so I, I, you, know, you can choose whether you want me to put the link or not. But uh, ultimately, uh, it's just good to know that there's people out there and who are doing good things. And, and if we ever do want to reach out, you know, um, we actually just quickly in closing, you talked about mentoring, how, how much outside of your kind of core group do you, do you do mentoring and, and that kind of advisory work? I am, I'm a mentor for 500 startups, which is a startup accelerator based out of San Francisco, but they have offices all over the world. Um, so I've worked with several of their portfolio companies, given um, lectures in you know, South America and Mexico City. So I'm always open to help up and coming entrepreneurs if they need any advice. You can reach out to me via LinkedIn. I will help you understand the things to not do because I've probably failed at most of them, which I would really want to save other people time on. So yeah, I'm always looking to pay it forward. I've had several fantastic mentors in my life and still do. And I think that's really how we continue to grow and expand. So I'm absolutely interested in helping anyone who needs any advice or guidance as, as much as I can. Excellent. Well, Rachel, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And again, for folks, don't forget this, is my little closing self, uh, you know, uh, uh, subscription here, make sure that you click on. And if you subscribe to the podcast, if you follow us, we're on uh, Instagram, on YouTube and all over the place. And, and also we're on Spotify. So if folks want to hear great conversations like this uh, and Rachel, I, I, I think I always win if every podcast, because I learn more and more every time. It's just, uh, I'm like getting mentored by the, the greatest people in the world. So, uh, and you're, you're among those people. So thank you very much. Thank you.